Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Welcome, Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark, episode 141. Mark will have to do something for 150, start thinking, June the 19th, 2020. And, well, I, I said we'd be punchy and we'd get into topics straight away, Mark, but everywhere I go there is excess hand sanitizer. Have you found that now that um, there's a glut, isn't there, <laughs> on the market of hand sanitizer? Um, at one stage a couple of months ago it was what, incredibly expensive. Um, it was probably more expensive than than alcohol by the look of things. And, in fact, one of our local distilleries, Mark, um, they were making hand sanitizer yes. um, instead of instead of their gin. And I think there's a few places that were doing that. Um, so hopefully they're back to the gin because um, I think I'd prefer the gin at the moment <laughs> rather, than the, rather than the hand sanitizer. So, yeah, vetgurus.com, the place to go. And we need to, to do a bit of a shout-out to one of our sponsors, our three main sponsors, and that's Chemical Essentials, which – is the distributor for the wonderful F10 disinfectant range. Speaking of hand sanitizers, and they do produce a hand sanitizer version as well, but we use F10 throughout our clinic as our main disinfectant. And um, it's great, non-toxic, and it does the job, Mark, and I think you do use the F10, don't you? We use it extensively. We use it um, as the the, the, um, all over the clinic where we use the particular dilutions to knock the yeast or the bacteria on the head. We have a spray um, that uh, gives us the opportunity, particularly at the moment, door handles and things. Honestly, use it all the time. Now, just quickly, and I said we were going to be quick, um, regarding F10, and I may have asked this previously, have you used it down the respiratory tract of birds and um, because there are lots of anecdotal sort of reports on on the forums about using it as a as an antifungal I suppose um, potentially antibacterial for not just nebulizing but actually sloshing it round down the down the trachea into the into the air sacs and lungs of birds have you have you tried it that way what's your thoughts on on those sort of products using them that way not just the F10 I'm I you, we sincerely and regularly sing the praises of F10, and I have no um, no trouble, um, you know, using it around the animals. It's non-irritant. But I have got to say that those uh, anecdotal reports of using the product as a um, as a uh, as a wash for the respiratory tract in birds, I I. I I have not done it myself because I'm such a weenie when it comes to doing things like that. Um, but I do see that respiratory tract be so sensitive um, that I can see some people get away with it. But I know the first time I do it, Brendan, I'm going to cause a huge reaction and uh, it's an well, idiosyncratic let, let, thing. And 
Yes. Well, let me know. Um, perhaps you'll just keep using it um, on the necropsies um, to um, spray the birth down <laughs> when you're doing those postmortem examinations, and that's a good use for it. Um, you have a well. You have a we have a couple of news stories that are topical, um, aren't they, Mark? And I think you may as well jump in with your first one. And it's about birds, of course. Um, what have you got to say? Well, we've gone back to the Mother Nature Network. We've a lot of our um, stories have not uh, have been from a variety of sources, but we've gone back home in a way. And this story talks about um, bird watching, which was already booming. Um, it's one of the uh, biggest five outdoor activities in the US, um, but it has boomed even more during the pandemic. And uh, there is a whole new um, aspect to looking at nature, particularly birds, without leaving home. Um, and it is such a good thing because so many people's yards and um, maybe just outside their yard is a regular place that birds will visit. Um, and, um, and yeah, the, the activity is booming, Brendan. In the National Audubon Society's bird identification app was downloaded at twice its usual pace in March and April, um, and uh, visits to the website um, were up by half a million visits. So um, given that uh, people's outdoor activity is restricted, um, it uh, it is it's sort of somewhat paradoxic that um, that their uh, um, bird watching activities uh, have jumped dramatically. But then when you think about it, um, being at home and having birds in the yard and time to contemplate them, it actually doesn't uh, doesn't be, it's not that much of a big surprise. There is, um, you know, how little time I spend on. Um, social media, Brendan, there is a Facebook page um, uh, that's called um, Bird Perfect at Home. And um, and it has, it was only opened um, about uh, March this year. Um, and it's uh, grown precipitously. Um, and it's a uh, the rules of the game are that you've got to list the birds that you see in your house. And I think the claim is that maybe three quarters of the species of the birds on, in the world have been seen by members of this Facebook page from their home um, in the three or four months since it started. So that's a measure of how much um, watching birds at home has taken off. That's a lot of twitching, Mark, a lot of twitching. Um one of the notes in that paper that astounded me was the US Fish and Wildlife Service estimated that birders, as well as other wildlife watchers, contributed nearly $80 billion to the US economy. Um, and I presume that's perhaps every year. I don't know, or maybe over, over time, probably over time, but it's a lot of money. But when I look at the gear that you take out, um, it probably... At least one billion of that is, is what you take out into the field there, Mark, with all your all your longer lenses, etc., that you have there. But yeah, um, yeah. So birding has certainly taken off there, um, and uh, it also mentions a little bit about um, the good positive effects of getting out there, Mark. Um, not just looking in the backyard, but getting out there and um, communing with nature away from our 
fellow humans, Mark, and keeping that social distance. My only news article, Mark, is about Spot the Robot. Spot the Robot. And this is quite disturbing. Have you seen the, yes, it is the video of Spot the Robot? So Spot the Robot is reminding park goers in a park in Singapore to keep their distance from one another. And it is it's a bit of a PR event by um, the company that made it, Boston Dynamics, um, who um, four-legged spot wanders around the park. He's got um, he's sort of semi-autonomous and um, cameras on him and um, he wanders up to people and, and sort of um, has a bit of AI in his um, system there that decides whether or not to um, yell out to people and say, um, keep away from each other, you're getting too close. Um, but um, it looks quite freaky, old spot, and um, I think he'd be... You'd be scaring some young children if they were in the park there, Mark. Um, what do you think about Spot? I think I think that um, Boston Dynamics has, um, I don't know, There's a there, we probably should devote a whole discussion to this, but um, it it's, oh, makes me feel very, very nervous, very... And, and so the, this actual uh, um, robot's been... Uh, and on a number of YouTube videos and a number of parodies, um, which are whether you know various tests are applied to the robot, increasingly violent and um, uh, physical until the robot virtually um, you know does a, a rebellious act to the people that are teasing it. Um, so yeah, he his leg on them, I think, yeah, and um, sprays them with a bit of. Um, <laughs> A bit of um, disinfectant, yeah. It does make me worry that the, you know, those stories that we said, the, the, the stories that led to Terminator, those sort of things might end up being more real than uh, than fiction when I watch these stories. Yes. So I, uh, why did I put that story in there? Who knows, Mark? Um, <laughs> who knows? Um, I don't know how my brain works most of the time, let alone this particular um Instance, well, yeah, there we go. Um, let's jump into our main topic, um, and that is one that, um, well, it's one that I'm going to quiz you, as usual, um, with the avian topics there, Mark. But I think it's a really important one, this. It's a, one of the practical sort of topics that we wanted to chat about, and it is Bumblefoot in our little avian friends. Um, so foot problems in our, in our pet um, birds, Mark. And, gee, it is one that... Well, people who deal a lot with birds, let alone um, people who don't see them very often, often um, break out in a sweat, Mark, um, about how to deal with the, those chronic bumblefoot cases and um, the issues and um, the long-term treatment um, that is often required and, and the frustrations with treating them um, and also the thoughts on prevention. So let's jump into it, Mark, and, um, yeah, um, what do we call it? We call it bumblefoot, don't we? What are, what are the other... Um, terms that clients have used um, for the foot problems that you've seen birds? Anything um, interesting or, or funny that you've heard clients say? <laughs> um, well, no, I, I haven't heard. The, the funny thing about this disease is that um, we'll certainly see occasional clients come in and go, oh, look, there's something wrong with my bird's foot. It's lame or whatever. Um, but very often we get to 
uh, identified at physical exam. It'll often be a thing um, that uh, the clients haven't noticed with many birds. Obviously, the large ones, the the Anseriformes, the ducks and whatnot, what they will be lame. Um, but sometimes it, it's, it may not necessarily be something the clients are aware of. And... Well, speaking of not knowing that it's a foot problem, so what signs do, are they presented with then if, if, if the client isn't phoning up and saying, look, my bird has a foot problem, what do they, what do they say on the, on the phone for that booking in the consultation? Well, it's it mainly, ends up subsequently being a foot problem, yeah. It's mainly comments about a level of activity. So they'll often describe the bird as being lethargic, that um, it's not moving around as much as usual. It's staying on the perch and not moving. And, of course, it's doing this because to move ends up causing pain and discomfort. So the bird gets into a position where there's it, it can cope um, and tries not to move so it doesn't put pressure on that sore spot on its foot. Um, the, in extreme cases, some parrots will even sort of hook their beak over the um, over the wire at some point to lift their body up and take weight off their their feet. The pain, the chronic pain, is so severe. Um, it's interesting, Brendan, because you were talking about different names. Uh, um, and while the clients often don't come up with one, it's often referred to as infectious pododermatitis. Um, and, um, and I think that's a little bit of a misnomer in that um, pododermatitis is a good description, uh, inflammation and infection of the, of the feet, but it's not a contagious infection. Um, it's a, a, the etiology is a different process. Yes. So... That leads me to a couple more questions, Mark. Um, do birds with these foot problems, a bumblefoot, if we just, we'll just call it that term from now on, um, do you see many of them where they actually lift that foot up and they, they self-traumatise? Or, or if it's a rare occurrence, why do you think um, that they just don't rip into themselves like some other species do when they have chronic issues on their body that they just, go nuts and they they just rip apart you know like a dog with a hot spot for instance is a classic one with them and secondly you did sort of hint at specific species that may be a little bit more prone to this so what are the common pet species of birds let's forget about wildlife that are brought in that you see bumblefoot in well, we definitely see it in all species. Let me emphasise that. But um, the species that are prone to obesity, we probably see it more more commonly in. And so the classic ones would be galahs. Um, those birds um, have a couple of habits that make it more likely they're going to develop those problems. They'll often have uh, um, uh, metaplasia of the epiderm epidermal surfaces because maybe they're on uh, sunflower seed diets and maybe they have uh, uh, vitamin imbalances that predispose them to changes to the epidermis. And then that changed epidermis um, uh, is accompanied by an additional body weight that the birds are heavier than usual and, um, and that's a direct result of that 
diet that they're on and um, the ease with which it's obtained. Um, so they sit in one spot for long periods of time. They develop uh, literal pressure sores. The, um, the weight and the change surface of the foot leads to avascular necrosis. The wound that occurs gets infected and there you go. So galahs are probably the, the first one we worry about. Um, we definitely see it in other species, uh, lorikeets commonly, um, particularly if they um, they have a tendency to put weight on because of their, their, in the wild, the high amounts of energy that they use to fly around vast distances. But we definitely see it also in birds like cockatiels. So um, certainly look out for it in the pudgier birds, I'd say, but always lift the bird. When you're doing your physical exam, roll the bird over and make sure you examine the soles of the feet. Flip the bird, Mark. <laughs> Is that your recommendation? Did I just say that? <laughs> yes. You always need to flip the bird um, in your consultation. I'll remember that. Um, it's a markism. <laughs> so, um, and the second part of my question was, um, do you see any of these self-traumatising with those chronic bumble foot um, issues? Um, if so, why? If not, why not? It's a great question because, um, as you said, you would instinctively think that there is going to be some uh, self-trauma. You would think it would be hugely uncomfortable, but we don't very often see. There's lots of other locations that birds seem to traumatise in response to pathology, but um, I don't regularly see the birds um, do damage to this location. And, and I think that... Um, and it's because, uh, so, so I think that the birds will traumatise locations, um, you know, if they've got a common thing for us to see is they might have um, uh, something like uh, um, nervous damage to the leg, maybe a fracture or a wound or a bite from another bird. And then once that nervous damage has occurred and they get an altered signal, an altered anaesthesia, they will do horrible damage to wounds. But on this weight-bearing surface of their feet, the chronic nature of the way it develops um, and the location seems to, me to mean that they don't regularly go for those things. So they're often not complicated by self-trauma. All I can say is yes, Mark, um, for the few ones that I have seen, and I don't personally see too many birds these days, I push them onto my colleague Belinda, um, that I can't remember um, any that um, were really ripping into themselves there. Yeah. So signs, so you've, you've mentioned um, the most common signs. Any other sort of signs you want to mention about um, that you would see on that examination after you've flipped the bird? Well, I think the key one is um, uh, just at your distant examination when the bird first comes into um, the consult room, um, noticing that it doesn't move up and down the perch as freely. The other thing when you're doing your distant examination is that um, you can often see that the bird slides along, that it's not keen to change the shape of its foot and grip the perch. It sort of moves in a very, in a manner that looks like it's protecting its feet. Um, and those birds will often stay off the wire. Um, they'll often um, just remain on the 
on the perch in their in their cage. But once you get them out, um, obviously the first thing that you might feel is just to have a uh, palpate of the the um, pectoral muscle mass on each side of the carina of the sternum, and um, and most of these birds will will be generously conditioned. And then, um, of course, uh, often with magnification helps to have a look at the um, at the base of the feet. And they'll often be smooth um, and you can often, in the early stages, detect relatively small sores um, on the weight-bearing surface. And then obviously, as they get bigger and more obvious, you can, uh, you can see the higher grade ones. Yep. So... Well, speaking of grading, do you sort of have a grading system? And I know some people do for patodermatitis. Um, do, do you think that's helpful um, with grading them um, as, as far as your approach to the treatment? And perhaps we can then start stepping through the treatment regime that, that um, well, that you perform um, with these cases. I think a grading system, we've, we have um, uh, – Adapted. There's a recognised published system that's used for poultry, um, and that is a useful bit of information to um, maintain the welfare, particularly of broiler chickens. Um, and we've adapted that published um, broiler chicken scale to so that we can apply it to um, our pet birds. And I think it does um, does give some assistance in in um, you know guiding you in terms of treatment and welfare outcomes so to give some idea we would uh, a normal bird would be a zero and a bird that had um, uh, multiple necrotic uh, lesions uh, maybe down to the point where the the pad has been eroded at points and you can see um, uh, deeper structures uh, um, uh, ligaments and uh, the 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 um, pad at the uh, under the surface of the main weight bearing, you know, all those subcutaneous structures, that would be a four. And between those, um, we get some idea of increasing severity. But the, the fours, we're often talking about multiple surgeries to cure, and we really have to have um, very, very committed clients. Um, and so the scale, the the um, grading gives us a bit of an idea that uh, we're going to have to talk to the clients about those more complicated uh, pathways to cure. Um, whereas the earlier um, grade one, maybe uh, early grade two, we would initially be talking about um, anti-inflammatory medications and exercise and weight loss um, and uh, and often we're treating those ones medically um, to get a, a, a result and we're not always immediately looking for some surgical procedure. I just had myself oh. on mute there. Um, I was as so usual. worried for um, a second. I thought, oh, my goodness, <laughs> the internet's let me down. So with those early <laughs> graded ones, Mark, um, do do so you said you treat them medically so sending them on home on anti-inflammatories for instance and adjusting the diet and um, actually if you could mention a little bit about do you do changes with the with the furniture and the perches and that sort of thing for them you asked um, two sorts of questions Brendan you asked me questions that I don't that are dumb and ones that are not dumb. One that lead, <laughs> lead me on to even smarter answers of course you you're the direction you're going in is um, is 
actually, I think, one of the most important things to do with these birds, and that is um, to encourage foraging. I think that if you continue to put the food, excess amount of energy-rich food in a bowl near the bird, um, then then things are just not going to get better. Um, you need to commit to uh, um, encouraging the bird to move around by placing the the food in various locations. That uh, and I, and I think a big part of the you know uh, when I first graduated, we would treat these as uh, all as infectious problems and put the birds onto antibiotics. But um, the bird's own immune system for many of these early grade ones um, they the the reason the infection takes off is because the lesion becomes avascular because the pressure of staying in one spot all the time stops blood flow to that area um, that allows the infection to occur whereas if the bird is more mobile if it has analgesia and then it's forced to climb up a branch to get to its food the movement of the muscles and ligaments and tendons, the movement, the physical structure of the foot and the skin of the foot moving aids in perfusion and provision of oxygen, provision of white cells and immunoglobulins, and the bird's own immune system will deal with many of the early stage infections. So with those, um, how long do you put them on? I know it's a bit of a catch 22 but if if those lower graded ones what what sort of the minimum you you'd put them on the anti-inflammatories for instance for um, length of time well bec because we're dealing with something that's not going to change overnight you know there would be many um inflammatory conditions we would have birds on uh, uh anti-inflammatories for you know five ten days um these cases though we're talking a minimum of four weeks um, and often the birds will be on them for um, and particularly some of these birds will be like this because they started life with um, awkwardly developed metabolic bone disease um, then as they have aged they develop um, degenerative joint disease because of the unusual shape of the bones um, and so those birds may well be on non-steroidals for the rest of their life. Yep. So as part of that initial work, are you usually recommending bloods at some stage or not? Early um, on or not? No, usually not in the very early stages, but um, those birds that are likely to be on uh, long-term non-steroidals or whose infectious uh, the infectious aspect of the problem hasn't resolved, you know, in between one and four weeks, then we are looking at further diagnostics. And that process might include um, either bloods or radiographs. Um, there are certainly times we've had uh, pododermatitis develop into osteomyelitis of some of the bones of the foot. Um, and those, it's difficult because not always um, do those osteomyelitis cases correlate well with the surface damage so sometimes the birds that have horrible skin problems might have pretty good bones or um, they might have a relatively you know a grade a late grade two or an early grade three not looking like you might be able to get it under control with a single surgical procedure um, and then um, 
you find out that it's infected the bone. So we do play a, a little bit by ear on the case-by-case basis which diagnostic process, we, uh, the diagnostic pathway we go down. And I presume the same with survey radiographs with them. Um, at some stage you decide, look, we need to have a little bit of a closer look to see whether or not there's any deeper damage to that um, particular individual. Um, do you want to w- walk through um, those slightly, n- the next stage, complicated ones where you do take them to at least a, a bit of a clean-up or, or um, basic treatment um, where you, where you um, sedate or anaesthetise it, Mark? Um, what, what's the process there and what, what are you aiming to do? Well, it's a good question again, Brendan. The target, the objective of a surgical procedure is to remove the necrotic tissue. That necrotic tissue um, is the the location where the the infectious agents and the ongoing perpetrators of inflammation will reside. So you want to, um, once they get to late... um, you know, grade threes or fours, you've got to remove all the dead tissue. That's the first objective. Um, and I, you know what a weenie I am with surgery. I'm always taking less than I need to or just being overly cautious. And this is one of those situations where a certain, you know, you they will not get better until you've taken all the dead tissue out. You've got to um, cut the dead tissue away. And of course, the thing that scares me and makes me a little bit cautious is that it leaves huge deficits um, and sometimes you've got to uh, um, deal with um, a, a significant sized wound that's difficult to close and um, and the second part then of the procedure is to try and arrange the bandage that you're um, putting over the, the uh, surgicalized area in such a way that it relieves pressure on that area because, of course, it's no good that you do marvellous debridement and then you manage to close the wound up um, and then immediately the bird weight bears on it, compromising blood flow to that location. And so that's where we end up using things like um, donut supports or um, there's a number of um, uh, products now that are that are designed for corn treatment in humans that you can buy at the chemist and um, these are adhesives that people uh, place on their feet um, to take pressure off particular parts of their feet and they can be um, very well adapted um, to be placed on the feet of birds and take the weight off those particular locations. Some people have a preference for including maybe a a donut of um, a cohesive wrap, one of the cohesive wraps like Coflex or something like that, um, and then incorporating that into a foot bandage or a ball bandage, it's sometimes called, um, so that the the uh, area immediately under the surgicalized area is sort of suspended a little bit above the the substrate uh, or the perch and um, and not having pressure applied to it. So those corn-type treatments for humans that are sometimes used, Mark, have you ever used any of those that have those, some of them have like almost like a caustic-type um, chemical in there to sort of um, to bride away, um, um, you know, some of them are urea-based, I think, um, with them. Um, what are your thoughts on using those to sort of debride that dead tissue worthwhile or, or, or steer clear from? We've always steer cleared of them. We've just known, we've always found that um, if you remove the dead tissue surgically and then you want to keep 
the area as healthy as the remaining healthy tissue is as uncompromised as you possibly can. And uh, uh, so that's the use of wound gels within, if there's any any small deficit, close it if at all possible, then support the foot so there's no weight, uh, you know, no pressure being applied to the wounded area. Yes. Antibiosis, Mark. So if you do have one of these cases that has an indication for using antibiotics um, any sort of general comments on what type of bugs you might um, be trying to hit there well yes um, they generally are unsurprisingly the sort of bugs that are common in um, bird droppings um, you know that it's hardly a surprise that the bird's going to stand on occasion on a part of the perch where a uh, a stool has descended from maybe a higher perch or whatever. Um, and so the bugs that we tend to see tend to be contaminants from the environment, um, particularly fecal contaminants. And in parrots, they tend frequently to be um, a mixture of gram-positive bugs. And so we're often uh, in these cases, if we haven't cultured and uh, got a specific um, uh, bug in mind um, with a particular sensitivity pattern, we're often using broad spectrum um, uh, gram, uh, broad spectrum antibiotics with a particular focus on the gram positive bug. So, we, you know, amoxicillin would probably be our first choice. Um, uh, there is some difficulties with. Uh, with those drugs in terms of the volume of them that you need to give uh, because obviously the dose rate is much higher in birds than it is in dogs and cats. Um, but but that's probably the direction we generally head in most frequently. And I presume that with those cases it will be a prolonged course with those antibiotics with those ones, right? Which does. Many weeks. Which, yeah, exactly. And that um, particularly those grade threes and fours, we are talking about um, something that's going to be, you know, three to six weeks at a, at a minimum. And sometimes uh, those ones that have a degree of osteomyelitis might be um, three or four months. So what do you do with the ones that don't work, Mark, that um, progress and are a disaster? What should options there well you this is this is a bit of a I, I hope it's not too controversial but um there have been times where i've uh, had some serious arguments arguments probably is over overly strong word but disagreements with uh, particular clients about the best course of action when uh when care fails and the lesions progress I don't think, by and large, I, there are there are exceptions, um, but I don't think that um, amputating the leg of a bird is generally a good thing. Um, the problem is that once you shift all the weight onto the other leg, and so the argument is that many of our parrots, they are so dexterous with their their head and beak that they can conceivably use that as um, an, as a replacement foot that they can get around a particularly well-designed cage if you were to amputate a one foot um, they could hold on with the other and move around with their beak the problem is that that foot which previously would have um, borne 50% of the bird's weight now has to bear 100% um, of the weight and 
the it's inevitable that that will lead to um, avascular necrosis and pressure sores and bumblefoot in the remaining foot. So the majority of them, what are you saying you, you recommend euthanasia? I am frequently having a long talk to people about quality of life and concluding it with a recommendation for euthanasia in birds that have one foot. Um, I, I have seen many attempts to use 3D printed duck feet or um, structures like that to try and give a bird quality of life and they invariably in relatively short order end up with uh, problems in the contralateral foot um, and uh, and yeah we're in deep trouble so prevention mark what do we do to try and stop this in the first place i think you mentioned something about obesity as one of the early comments what what did I say? Prevention. <laughs> what what's obesity? Oh, <laughs> obesity. Um, yes, obesity. Yep. Yes, your your uh, um, in the the inter- I suppose the discussion we had about um, the treatment of the simple ones is a, a natural extension of the prevention that um, uh, making sure these birds are adequately exercised that they have a diet that doesn't. Uh, predispose them to being overweight that they have one of the things that's a a really important thing i think is for um is for people to make sure they take out the dowel perches if they do house a bird in a cage that has um routine uh routine regular shaped dowel perches the the same shape means that they always wear pressure in the same point and it makes a problem. So changing those dowel perches for something that has a variety of um, of diameters and a variety of angles so the birds are forced to grip at different points that sometimes they're on a bit of a slope, sometimes they're flat. Um, the, the flat parts are nice and big or very, very thin so that they've got to change the position of their foot. And when they do that, they weight bear on different surfaces and they're not always weight bearing on precisely the same spot. So if they're fit, if they're, um, uh, uh, they have great body condition and good uh, musculature if they're active and have excellent cardiovascular fitness so they have excellent perfusion and they move a lot so the natural movement of their leg helps to aid that perfusion that markedly decreases the risk of uh, pododermatitis yes i just thought of one f- final question mark before we close and that's do you see many of these or any of these that are related to other Seemingly unrelated conditions that people may not think about if they're not seeing many birds, and that's conditions like gout, Mark. We do occasionally see. Well, I it's an interesting question because I think of those lesions that we do sometimes see on the feet of birds um, in relation to articular gout as a different type of lesion. Now, I know they look you know, to the external eye, they're round, they're often red, they're over a pressure point over the joint. But I think the problem arises, you know, the etiology is the same. The lesions develop because that tissue is under some degree of pressure and so the blood doesn't get to it and the tissue, tissue dies by avascular necrosis. But the pressure is arising from the 
the structures inside the joint, the swollen joint with the urate crystals um, pushing the joint capsule out changes the dynamic of the blood flow. So while the lesion looks very similar, I, I think there are very different um, causes. And of course, every, they, you know, we, like many avian practices, we um, work to try and uh, palliate the, the, once they start to develop articular gout, it's virtually impossible to remove that. Um, and so we're trying to palliate the signs associated with it. Um, and it's really difficult. And that discussion about um, humane euthanasia is something that we, um, that we uh, that we we start very early once we're talking about a bird with gout. Yep, I think yeah. What I was sort of trying to get at there, you might have a client that phones up and says my bird has bumblefoot or pododermatitis, and it's actually something like gout. That yeah. you'd look at it at a slightly different um, angle. Um, although that you know immediately you may be thinking, oh, we've got to start thinking about what sort of grade this particular bumblefoot is. Um, any other final comments, Mark, before we um, flip the bird and head out of here? <laughs> the only uh, thing I think I've forgotten to mention is that um, uh, when we have um, water birds or, um, or even uh, parrots that are in hospital who might be on, um, you know, uh, for other reasons, their illness might mean that they're less mobile and they haven't got bumblefoot yet. We want to use perches or substrates in the case of the ducks that might come in um, that uh, are supportive. We might use a rubber mat under the duck. Um, we might make sure they spend some time in the water um, so that they're taking the weight off their feet and they're swimming. And our parrots, we would um, we would use uh, uh, perches that all similarly a, a, ver a variety of diameters and maybe even some uh, softened uh, rubber wrap around them so that they uh, they don't develop problems. Excellent. Now, well, now, now you can flip the bird. Now we can flip the bird, and we will talk to you all next week. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus. Don't forget to visit us at the website vetgurus.com where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time. Thanks.